0: Folks, if we can uh, take a seat, grab your cup of coffee or your cocoa or whatever and make yourselves comfortable, we'll get started here. Hey, hey, hey. Well, good morning to y'all. If you don't know me, my name's Bob Bonner. Uh, I have been pastoring here in the Valley of the Rogue Valley for about 36 years. And uh, a few years ago, I stepped away from full time to take on a another unique ministry. And uh, it was very challenging for me to step away from doing what I had been doing for 30-something years in this town. A friend of mine and I, way back in 88, planted a little church called Calvary Crossroads. And uh, we've been there for that most of that, of that time. But in 2018, I, um, I decided I was gonna take some of my discretionary time and hang out with some of the new young pastors that were in town to kind of be a confidant, build into their lives, encourage them, um, answer questions if I could. And I, I met about five or six of them, and, and Sam was one. And when I met Sam, uh, he told me that he was about to plant a church. It was nine months before Philippi was open. And uh, he said, you know, I'd I'd like to say, I got some questions for you. I want to know a little bit about the neighborhood. I want to know about the culture and so on and so forth. So we met several different times. And I've just been kind of keeping my ear to the ground of what what was happening here. And we had an opportunity to come a couple of different Sundays, and we loved what we saw. And uh, one Sunday, Sam needed someone to fill in, so he asked me to do so way back when he was in the book of Genesis. And uh, I don't know if any of you were here then, and if you are, well, good luck for this morning. <laughs> so, um, but one of the things that I have noticed, and, and how many of you were not here last Sunday? Last Sunday. Okay, if you want to do yourself a really good favor, go back and look and watch on the YouTube Sans Message. Yes. That sucker fired me up. I was so excited about that, and it, it caused me to think about the history of this church and where it is right now. Right now, I've noticed and met several of you who have only recently come to Christ. You have discovered personally the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus in your lives. And there's fruit and evidence of that. And I've known some of you who were kiddos, and some of you weren't even born before you even came to Crossroads, and I've seen how you've come in here and started using your skills and your talents to encourage others. I've met some of you who've known the Lord for a while, and, well, as a friend said this morning, you kind of wander a little bit, and you get on the fence, and you're not sure if you want to keep doing this or not, and all of a sudden, you've, you've come back to life. There is a dynamic that is going on here that is exciting, and it is sweet. And as I was thinking about what should I be talking on for this morning here, I thought, you know, maybe they need to know what one of the key secrets is to having an ongoing, dynamic, gospel-centered ministry that is effectually touching people's lives 30 years from now. Do they need to know what it's going to take? Because I have to tell you, the moment this church started, and people started getting saved, you had a target on you as the Church of Philippi. And you all know why. The evil one hates what God's doing. And he will do everything he can to deceive, to lie, to disturb, and to destroy what's taking place here. And each of you individually will either play a major part of success or the failure of this fellowship in one area. And it's really simple, but it's really powerful. So this morning, we're going to come to that in a second. I think what we probably ought to do is um, get back to who really is most important, the Lord. And why don't we talk to him for a few minutes, and uh, at the same time, lift up the Emmels, the Pecks, and Abby, as they're over in Albany, 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 Albania, Albania, Albania <laughs> and uh, before they come back. So let's, let's just pray together, right? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for being here in our midst. Um, We love you. Uh, Your steadfast love towards us is amazing. Thank you for being faithful to us, even at times when we have been unfaithful. We hunger to hear from you via your word this morning, and we ask that your spirit would calm our hearts and focus our minds on what you consider is most important for us, and that we would be in a teachable position to learn together together from you and ask you to cause us to consider directions, corrections, issues that you would have us make decisions about and that we would follow up and do those things. Lord, we lift up Sam and Brian and Emily and, and, and Bree and Randy and Abby um, and, and ask that you would open up the eyes to, of Sam and Ryan as to what it is if anything, you would have us do in ministry together over in Albania. And I pray, Father, as they encourage Abby and they leave her behind to do ministry there, the Lord, she would find a niche, that special place with you, where no matter what happens in the days ahead, she can go there and be with you, and you can hear the cries of her heart, and you will give her direction and excitement and encouragement for the ministry that you've called her to. The Lord, as you have called us here, not just to worship with you this morning, but to serve you in this town, we ask that you'd have your way again in the studying of your word. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. In order to, to kind of help you know where we're going, I need to give you a little bit of personal backdrop on how this came to be so important to me. It was early on in college when I, became, I came to Christ. And I'll never forget my freshman year when um, people found out I was a Christian and they started asking me, some of my peers, a lot of questions. And there was some mocking. And I ended up being in a history class with a professor who thought Christians were crazy and, and all that kind of stuff. And I was really challenged as a young believer as to uh, a lot of different things. How do you know the Bible's the word of God? How do you know that Jesus is really the son of God? How do you know and why do you think that Jesus is the only way? And if God's a loving God, why does he send people to hell? And how do you know that the Bible's the word of God? What about evolution? You know, those are all some pretty heavy topics. And uh, I wasn't brain dead, so I had to do a lot of research on my own and find those answers. And I discovered the more I found, the more confident I became in my faith. And it was so much easier for me in the midst of this barrage of different things in universities, to share Christ. The other thing I picked up as a young believer in college is, Lord, why couldn't somebody have told me this when I was 12 or 13? Because between those years and getting out of high school, I won't share my dirty laundry with you, but I made a lot of stupid decisions. Decisions that marked me even to this day that I wish had never been there, but they were. And, and my passion was, I wanna go back and deal with high school students. And I would still be dealing with high school students if the Lord didn't drag me away kicking and screaming from working with high school students. Because personally, and I'm not gonna to explain to you why, I believe that the key young men and women we should be discipling are those from junior high to high school. Because if you get a hold of them, you're also going to get a hold of those who consider them their most prized possession, their parents. And their parents are going to range between 35 and 45 years of age. And they're going to be the ones with the most energy, the most ability to influence and change their culture, as well as finance the church. So it wasn't just from a business point of view. It's they are the life of the church and will be in the future. So when mom and dad die... It is the teenagers who are eventually going to be 35 and several of you are getting in those age groups who are here that are going to make a difference in Philippi in the next 15, 20 years. So I was pumped about dealing with high school students and I knew from my own personal experience that if they were going to make it when they get out of high school, somebody had to teach them the word of God in such an effectual way that they knew the answers to the difficult questions for the barrage that was going to come at them. So I focused on teaching them the word of God. And you know what really made a big difference? And I do not want in any way, shape, or form to take away when you're finished, when I'm finished this morning, we do think, and I don't think that's important. It is extremely important. But I discovered when you fast forward 40 years later that the young people are not turning away from Jesus Christ because of lack of knowledge. They are turning away from Jesus Christ when they get into the work world. And many who've known Christ and, and turn away in their 30s and 40s, they're turning away from him because they've lost their moral moorings. Their conscience has been disrupted. This morning, why don't you open up to Timothy, First Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to begin to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of his disciples who was one of the leaders in the church of Ephesus, a young and growing church. It was only about three years old. How old is is Philippi? Three years old. No coincidence there. Anyway, Paul was wanting to speak to Timothy so that he would challenge the rest of the church in Ephesus to keep a danger zone in mind. And so in so doing... He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He said, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, these were some older folks that had laid hands on him, recognized his spiritual gifts, knew he would be someone who could influence grown-ups even though he was a young man. And so he's saying, I want you to, I want you to know that in accordance with the prophecy that he's made about you, that by them, Timothy, you fight the good fight. How do you fight the first good fight? There's two things he says. First, he says, I want you to keep the faith. And the term there for faith is not the action or the ability to trust or to believe. It is dealing with the thing that you are trusting and believing in. And basically, basically, that's the doctrines of the faith or, if you will, the information of the gospel of transformation. Then he adds, he says, and keeping a good conscience, which some of you rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their walk of faith. Now, this little word here, which, does not refer, in the Greek grammar, to keeping the faith and good conscience. It refers just to the good conscience. So what I want you to have in your mind is a picture of a yacht. Okay, and the yacht is called the good faith, meaning walking with Christ. And this yacht has to go out in the seas where there are storms. But in order when a storm hits for this, this yacht to be secure... Off the bow and off the aft, it has to have mooring lines. Y'all know what a mooring line looks like? Mooring lines are ropes that are entwined together, and they are extremely strong. And if you hook them onto an anchor front and back, and the storms come, that baby isn't going to move. But if they break, there'll be a shipwreck on the shore. Those mooring lines are our conscience. And if our conscience has a problem, the ship is going to wreck. So he goes on to say, and that's what he says here, that they will, it will have suffered for its um, uh, shipwreck in their face. So here's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at the, the importance of maintaining a healthy conscience. Because as your individual conscience goes, and as your conscience touches the conscience of the person next to you, so will the excitement and dynamic of this church continue in the future. It's a very important subject. You know, Christians don't just suddenly um, become greedy. They don't just suddenly become slanderous. They don't suddenly get addicted to sex or addicted to certain drinks or foods or addicted to being approval it because I have to feel good because the pastor says I'm wonderful, but if he ever frowns at me, I feel worthless. Or whether it's a coach or a teacher or a parent or a lover. We're not to be addicted to approval. And, And we don't just get there. Somehow, somehow we go through the stop signs of our conscience. And we start to see either we're coming close to having a wreck or some of us have actually wrecked. Um, the moral mooring lines are really the lifeblood of an effective, dynamic Christian life. This subject is so important that the Apostle Paul talks about it throughout his letters. He mentions it in, in 1 Timothy four two, he mentions it in Titus one fifteen. In Timothy four, he describes a dead conscience that is dead because it's been seared. You know when you burn your fingers and they get hot and pretty soon there's no feeling in them? Well, before, when your conscience was pricked, you would feel it. But when your conscience is unhealthy and it becomes seared, you don't feel it. The voice of the Lord that used to be really loud is now very quiet and almost deaf. The second word he uses is the word defiled. It's a term elsewhere translated as as, uh, corrupt, um, and uh, there's another one, spoiled, spoiled. Uh, This past week, Becky and I were taking a walk in our neighborhood, which we often do, and, and before we went, Becky said, you know, Bob, there's a plum tree that's hanging over the sidewalk, and it's still producing plums, and, and there was, it's growing in somebody's backyard, but it's making a mess of the sidewalk. And so she says, let's grab a bag and pick up a bunch of, you know, plums. I said, okay. And so I also realized after we got there why she wanted me to go with her because they were way out, you know, <laughs> stubby little Becky couldn't reach there. So, so we grabbed these, these plums and we took them home and we washed them all off and we put them in a bowl so that we could go by and grab a plum and... Suck on that, baby. So a couple days ago, we came home. We had fruit flies in the kitchen. Oh, we knew where that came from. So we went over and got the bowl. And if you looked inside, you saw defiled, corrupted, spoiled plums. And when the spoilage started to spread from itself to the next plum, that plum started to spoil. So what we had to do is get the plums out. Throw out the spoiled one, rinse them all off, and put them back. If you look at the body of Christ as a bowl of plums, and you are a plum. You cannot only spoil, but if you allow yourself to continue to spoil, you will infect the person next to you. And there's this lie out there that if I just sin this little way, I'm not going to hurt anybody else, it's just going to hurt me. And that is a lie straight from hell. Because as your conscience goes, it'll either become dead and defiled and spoil others, or it's going to remain live and vital, have a sweet aroma, and be worthy of taste. Five years from now, what do you want to be? That's, that's where it comes down to is our own individual personal choices. It says on that in verse 19 that some have rejected this conscience. That term for rejection is a very strong, emphatic word in the original language, and somewhere it's used to describe people who knowingly choose to not listen. So as to rebel, I know what I should do, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to reject the voice of the spirit in my life and do what he says I should not do. So I would deliberately and with intention take what I know and ignore it. Um, And if you do that for a while, you rationalize it, pretty soon you pacify the guilt and shame that comes when you know you've done something wrong. Um, It'll wreck your life. I remember when I was at the University of California at Santa Barbara, Becky and I worked with an organization called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And when we got there, we lived in a dorm that had two towers, eight floors on each tower, joined with commons down below. There was a girl's tower at, at that time and a guy's tower. My job was to help establish evangelistic outreach Bible studies in the dorm on each floor, and Becky took the girls' tower, and I took the guys' tower, and in so meeting with a group of people on each of the floors, I was obviously known for being a Christian, not because I would take my Bible out and beat people over the head, but this guy just really thought a lot about Jesus Christ. And, and I'd have great discussions with my floor mates all the time. And we had a gr- really good relationships. We would tease and laugh and, and get into pranks and all kinds of stuff together. But I remember one night, this was like two or three months into the, uh, fr- our first year, uh, one of the guys knocked on my door, stuck his head and says, hey, Bob, we're putting together a hearts game. You want to play? And I said, sure, I'm in. Yeah, hearts was a big thing back there, you know, so we would play hearts. So if you can imagine, we're sitting at this table that somebody has set up, and across from me is a neo-Orthodox Jew named Jeff. Now, I'd gotten to know Jeff a couple of months before, and he told me about his family background and stuff. So I knew a little bit about him. And these other two guys, I knew very little. So we're in the middle of playing this card game. Nobody's talking about politics. Nobody's talking about sex. Nobody's talking about religion. We're focused on our card game. So I am stunned when Jeff out of nowhere says, you know what, Bob, I don't believe in hell. Hmm. What does that have to do with the queen of spades? You know, I mean, I, I just stood there. And I, I didn't, what am I supposed to do with that? And, and the other two guys, they heard it and they looked at Jeff and now I got three sets eyes looking at me. And I just said, so Jeff, you want me to tell you why you don't believe in hell? And he looked at me and he said, well, I, I wasn't expecting, yeah, can you tell me why I don't believe in hell? And I said, sure I can. I said, Jeff, you were raised in a Jewish home, right? Right. Let's say you're eight years old. Did you know that the Sabbath was holy and you were supposed to be in synagogue on Saturdays when you were eight? Yeah. Is that okay? Did you know at eight years old it was wrong to steal? Yeah. Did you know it was wrong at eight years old to lie? Yeah. I said, did you know it was wrong at eight years old to have sex outside of marriage? Yeah. And I said, okay. Let's fast forward to the mighty age of 13. By the time you were 13, had you ever stolen anything? He just did not one of those and he went, well, yeah. It wasn't big. I said, let me guess, candy at the local drugstore. And he goes, yeah, how'd you know? I said, been there, done that. said, how'd you feel when you took the candy? First of all, I said, why did you take the candy? And he said, because I wanted it, and I thought it would be kind of exciting. I said, yeah, sin's exciting. And I said, after you took it and after you ate it, how did you feel? Did you feel guilty? Did you feel shame? He went, yeah, a little. And I said... And how did you get rid of that? And he said, I don't know. And I said, did you keep on stealing for a while? Why? Well, my friends got into it, too. And so we all started doing it together. I said, oh, so wait a minute. So what you did is you changed your rules. And your kids' friends agreed with you. And now because you have compatriots saying, hey, it's okay and fun to steal, you began to steal without guilt and shame. Correct? And he goes, yeah. I said, all right. I said, did you tell your parents what you did? No. How did you feel about not telling your parents? Well, not too good. Oh, so now you're stealing and deceiving from your parents. So how did you get over that? Well, I just figured everybody lies to their parents once in a while. Oh, I said, okay. Now, because of one of the discussions we'd had, I knew that he had lost his virginity earlier on, but I didn't know when. So I said, Jeff, in front of the rest of these guys, are you still a virgin? He says, no. And I said, how often have you been with a different woman? He said, several times. I said, Jeff, what happened to eight years old when you knew that that was wrong? Why is it okay now? I know sex is fun. But there's a parameter on it when God wants it to be blessed. And you go outside that parameter, and it isn't going to be blessed. It will get spoiled. So why did you do that? Besides the fact that it was fun, everybody was doing it. And I said, okay. So you want to know why you don't believe in hell? Yeah. I said, because you've allowed your, con- your conscience to be so seared and so defiled, and that the only way you could get beyond it feeling guilty and shame is you would change the rules. And the ultimate ruler is God. And you know, deep in your soul, where you want to deny it or not, that one day you're going to have to answer to him about what you've done. But if you can erase hell and any consequence of violating the conscience that God has given to every human being, you're going to be free to do whatever you want, even ruin a church. I stopped. (laughs) And we just sat there like this. It was very uncomfortable. So I finally said, you know, I didn't come here to talk about religion and morals. I came here to play hearts. Would you guys mind if we go back to play Sure, we'll go back and play hearts. But I know, I know those darts stuck. And what they did with them, I ultimately don't know. I want you to understand that the scripture clearly tells us there are serious consequences when we violate our conscience. And the Apostle Paul teaches us that over in the book of Romans, chapter 1. And I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but I just want you to see a little bit about what he says. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If you're going to suppress the truth about something... What must be true about you? That you know the truth. You cannot suppress something you don't know. Right? And that's just what Paul goes on to say. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. Every human being at some point in their life knows there is a source or a power bigger than themselves. It's past April, I was fishing with one of my high school buddies, guys that I've been praying for, that I would have an opportunity to share my faith with them. And, but but I, didn't, I wanted an entrance into that, because these guys are now my age. They're 70. And they are, some of them are very, very well-known, famous people in the world. And so um, this one guy asked me, he says, Bob, you sure took a, a far right turn from the rest of us in our, in, our, in our high school from where you went. How did you do that? And so that led into about a two-hour, you know, discussion, and they kept pounding me with questions, why this and why that, whatever. And then one of them um, said, uh, I'd like to see you in action. Well, this was just before COVID, and the only time I'd had a YouTube on me was at another church that I was preaching on. Preaching in on the, um, on uh, faith crises in our lives, and I said, Well, if you want to, you can look at those two. you know that 's fine. He spent two and a half hours watching these videos of me teaching on faith, and when I woke up the next morning, he had a legal pad of paper. who brings paper and a legal pad on a fish trip? And he'd written several pages of notes. And he says, I want to talk to you about this. Well, I was packing up because I had to get home. And I said, man, we can talk on the phone later, but whatever. And he says, okay, I've got, got one question for you. Why, when you preach, do you presume that your audience knows there's a God? And I'm thinking, duh. <laughs> I mean, I'm in a church. <laughs> what else are they going to think about? you know?" And so, so I told him, I said, well... Because I knew what he's asking, because he's kind of saying, I don't necessarily believe there's a God. And so I just told him exactly what Romans said, open it up to Romans 1 here, and I said, Carrie, you are lying to yourself if you don't think there's a God. Because God said, I made it evident within them. Well, Carrie asks, How? And he goes on and he says, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So, Carrie, are you without excuse? You know and I know. Now, you can deny him, but don't ever say you didn't know there is a God. He goes on here and he says, "'For even though they knew God, "'they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, "'but they became futile in their speculations, "'and their foolish heart was darkened. "'Professing to be wise, they became fools, "'and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God "'for an image in the form of a corruptible man "'and of birds and four-footed animals "'and crawling creatures.'" So what happens? They know there's a God, they refuse to do what God wants, and they become fools. They think they are wise. Ladies and gentlemen, science will tell you there is only two sexes, male and female. You were born one or the other. There may be some confusion in your mind, but if you go take a blood test, they'll figure out which one you are. Now, you may have some issues and confusions that you need to deal with, but don't become a fool. Understand what God says in His Word, because you go up against that and you're going to shipwreck your entire life. This is where conscience comes in, because as soon as we decide that we can cheat or deny God in this little area, It's going to shift to another and another and another. And then we come to church with our quiet, permissible sins that we know are not appropriate. But nobody's caught us. The Lord knows. We're not going to look at the rest of Romans 1, but uh, obviously if you read through it, it goes on to talk about how this pervades through all of culture. And you see just a disaster of culture through the rest of the chapter. So how is it that the secular world's scoffing of Christians, when they get out of high school and they go into the work world or they go into college, how is it that these scoffing traditional arguments, there have been no new arguments in thousands of years, how is it that when you take their arguments one at a time, and you look at them one at a time, and you realize they're unpersuasive, they are unconvincing, when viewed objectively, how is it that we suddenly buy into it? Because there's something inside of us that says, I really want their argument to be correct, because if it is correct, or if I think or can convince myself that it's correct, I could live like hell, and it's okay. And so you get these Christians who are coming out of their homes who've been taught and understand the word of God, and they get into college, and they're faced with all kinds of choices, and most of those choices, sin is fun, or Satan wouldn't have a hold over you. And so they decide, man, I want to have some fun, and I am going to disregard the truth that I know. And pretty soon, it's not about knowledge. It's about their conscience. And that sweet interchange to hear the Lord's voice between the individual and the one who's getting into the Word of God. And pretty soon, that voice becomes more quiet and more quiet. And then it's non-existent. And they go to church and somebody else starts speaking for the voice of God and they hear it, but pretty soon they start to put up Defenses from hearing it, and then pretty soon they don't go to church at all. And where does it all begin? Well, it doesn't begin with one bad choice. If I had a mooring line and I pulled out my pocket knife and and it was razor sharp. I can cut it once, I can slash it again. it probably take a thousand slashes before I ever cut that mooring line or it becomes weak enough that it'll explode and break. The same thing is true for our consciences. It just takes a little repetition. Repetition is the mother of learning. Sometimes it's learning bad things. And so we can injure our lives by doing that which was wrong. Um, Let me give you just a practical example of, of one area that can destroy this church. It's an area that Jesus Christ talks about. It's an area that usually once or twice every two years I would teach on at the church because it's something that we easily, easily forget. In fact, it's something that even some of my close pastor friends find themselves wrestling with trying to figure out, how am I supposed to work through this broken relationship with someone? Jesus in Matthew 18, and we're not going to look at that whole passage, brings up some ideas on it, but let me just back up and say this. How many of you have ever felt wronged or hurt by anybody? Okay. Now, let's get more specific. How many of you have ever felt sinned against or wronged by somebody who was a Christian in the church that you were at? How many of you have felt sinned against or wronged by somebody in this church? Don't raise your hand. It's not bad that you were wrong. What's bad is how we respond to it. And really, you have three ways you can respond to being wronged. One is you can strike out at the person and vengeance is mine. God says, no, it isn't. Vengeance is mine. may take time for the truth to catch up, but don't you try to hurry it. I'll take care of it. So that response is wrong. The second response is found in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8. Where Peter writes, and here's a guy who is a number one class screw up. He writes, "Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins." So one way you do it is by with even out the other person asking for forgiveness you just love them and forgive them. Back in uh, late September, Becky and I were in Nashville and we got a bad case of COVID. And for three weeks we were brain dead, emotions were just blah, physical fatigue and we're still trying to catch up and gain our strength. And I can look back over those weeks and I know that there were times where I probably didn't respond or say things to her the way she needed them. And bless her heart, I remember telling her one time, you know, I'm really sorry for something. And she, she just said, it's okay. Bless her heart, she knew that because of the pressures and everything that was going on, that neither of us were in our right minds. But love covers a multitude of sins. She didn't, you know harp on me. Now, if I had continued that for six months, she'd have to go into step two. But up until step one, it's love covers a multitude of sins. Step two is Matthew 18. Now, we're going to just touch on this portion of Matthew 18. From verse 15 to the end of the chapter, this chapter deals what, what do you do with broken relationships What's the object of what you're supposed to do when you have a broken relationship, et cetera? And I have to tell you, after having been preaching and studying God's word for almost 50 years, most Christians, including pastors, do not know how to interpret this entire chapter. They get parts of it together, but they don't get all of it. And they don't see how it all ties together. And if we have time sometime in the future, and if Sam says, hey, I got you want to go teach? Fine, I'll teach it. But all I want you to do is see the very first step, which is one that we all tend to avoid when somebody wrongs us. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, and then he goes on to the rest of the chapter. Now, let's just start with that. Question, I really want to hear an answer here. When Jesus says, go and tell, what do you think he means? D- raise your hand and we'll just, so we it. What does he mean? Go and tell him. <laughs> so describe go and tell. Okay, good. Now let me just pick a little more. It's a good example. When you tell this friend, are you gonna pick up the phone and say, hey friend, I found out, is that going? Is, are you going when you're talking to them about the wrong, by picking up the phone and talking to them? This is the key, folks. When somebody does something wrong to you and you wanna talk to them about it, Go to them face to face. You know, they did have papyri and pins. So Jesus could have said, when somebody wrongs you, get a piece of papyri, write it out, and have a messenger and send it to him." And Jesus could have said, if he were alive today, if somebody sins against you, text them. Or email them. Or snail mail them. But he didn't. It's really great to find out your sin on Facebook. (laughs) Friends, it's happening within the church all over the place. And it is killing the dynamic and influence of that local body. Why do you think Jesus says, go and speak with the person? Answer? Because if you send it in a letter, it can be misinterpreted. Communicators will tell you that the majority of communication comes from tone, body language, facial expressions, and very little on words. And if you go to them face to face when somebody's really hot, you can say, wait a minute, do you think this and this and this? Yeah. Well, I didn't think that. That wasn't the reason I wrote that, said that, did that, or whatever. I meant this. You did? And you would find out, in a majority of cases, what you're dealing with is a misunderstanding. And it still may have caused a problem, but if you go to them, at least you have the opportunity to reconcile and build relationships. Now, we are living in a very, very crippled society. Why? Because our homes are crippled. If marriages are crippled, then the family's going to be crippled, and the society is going to be crippled, and the church is going to be crippled. We cannot continue to follow the directions of the cripples and hope that we're going to be transformed. We need to do what Jesus says. So when someone is wrong, you go to them and deal with them. Okay, Paul gives us a wonderful example because this, for sure, is not easy. Um, In Acts 24, verse 16, Luke records a discussion of Paul's. And Paul says this. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God, both God and man. Now, what does Paul mean? (laughs) that it takes pain to have a clear conscience. Trying to maintain a healthy conscience is work, and it oftentimes hurts. I'm thinking of an example in, in the Church of Corinth. Paul and a couple of others were responsible for planting this church. And about two, three years later, this church is active and it's vital and it's growing, but all of a sudden... There's this divisiveness that takes place. And it comes ultimately from some that Paul had led to Christ. And they are, for whatever reasons, jealousy, uh, wanting to feel important. I don't know. We're not told in the text. But they start mocking the apostle Paul and his manner, his style of teaching. Now, then there are other brothers and sisters in the church that love his style of teaching. And they're excited, but they're really about Paul, but they're really ticked off at their friends who are really criticizing this guy that they love and value. And so Paul gets it, he understands it, and so he writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Now understand the context. He's writing to his friends who love him, who are upset that these other people are saying what they're doing. And he said, look, if you forgive him, I just want you to know I forgive him too. And it's me they're shooting at. And then he adds, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by, there he is Satan. For we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Now, the, the letters that are highlighted in yellow there, those are almost throwaway words, off the cuff statements, most people think. But they are not. They're very important. When Paul says that, uh, if I have forgiven anything, what Paul is saying, because he's already told them, I forgave you, because he said that, uh, he said, for what I have forgiven. But when he adds the next phrase, he's saying, but I can't even remember what they did. So I don't even know if I forgave them. That's his point. And he's following God's example in Hebrews 10, 7, that What God forgives, God forgets. Now, does that really mean God who knows everything, that he doesn't know what was there? No, he chose to forget it and let it go. So this poison of bitterness doesn't spread from him and defile the people next to him and defile those who are in the church. It all goes back to this whole issue of conscience. Um. Again, I said earlier, repetition is the mother of learning. I can remember occasions where I've been wrong. Can you imagine being in, in, in the pastorate for 36 years and dealing with messy people, and I was only wronged one time? No, no. But I remember one time, there was a situation that was going on, and I had forgiven this person in my mind. But for whatever reason, I went past his place of employment and it just like brought back everything. And I just started stewing. And I stewed the entire rest of that day. That night, the next morning, I got up to take a shower, which is oftentimes where the Lord speaks to me because I love sitting under hot, warm water. And (laughs) I'm stewing about it. And the Lord says, okay, are you going to continue to be bitter towards this person or are you going to forgive him again? Really, Lord? I'm sorry. It's wrong for me to do this. So I forgive this so-and-so. And I ask that you would really bless his life. And at your time and in your way, would you show him your better way? And I had to do that many times. And pretty soon I discovered that repetition is the mother of learning. Or when you've been hurt, if you want to forget the hurt, disremembering begins by refusing to recycle that negative memory of an unpleasant event. And you start thinking about what the Lord said. Do you know the letter of of Philippians? Do you know why Paul wrote it ultimately, the thing that finally got him to it. You don't find out until you get to the very end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. There are two gals that were part of his evangelistic ministry team in Philippi. And can you believe two women got (laughs) crosswires? I don't know what it was all about, but they 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 had a problem. So Paul addresses, this is very unique, he addresses this letter in verse 1 to both the elders and the deacons. You guys need to take care of these two women. They are causing an issue. So when you start reading about give thanks and everything with prayer and supplication, What Paul has in mind is what he just talked about a few verses for, these two women. And when he comes down to verse 8, and he says, I want you to think about those things that are true and honorable and just, what he has in mind is don't focus on what this person's mistakes and errors were, but focus on the fact that they're a true follower of Jesus Christ who stubbed their toe. They've got some spiritual gifts. They have shared their food. They have shared their time. These are good things. Okay, Lord, if I don't ever get it totally resolved, I'm going to love them. You get it? Yeah. And Philippi, this Philippi, has such an incredible future. But each of us, myself included, because another two or three days I'll be offended by somebody here or, I, or I'll offend you. Somewhere in there, we're gonna get the opportunity to apply this. So, how are we gonna do that? Let me give you four things that I have found that have been really helpful for me in maintaining a clean and healthy conscience. One of the things is, in your own personal devotions, go find some place where you're not interrupted, and you have five, 10, 15 extra minutes And you have a journal and a piece of paper. And you sit down and you say, Lord, is there any thought or action of mine that has been contrary to your will? Am I at fault in any way with somebody else? And you just sit there and wait. Are there any broken relationships? Is there anyone that I need to seek their forgiveness for being a jerk? And you just wait. Now, the first time you do it, the first time I did that, oh, man, I had a year's worth of appointments to go back and deal with people. And it was a messy year. I committed to do it, and I went through the entire list. And by the time I got to the end of it, I said, never again, Lord. I'm never, we are going to keep short accounts. So this has been an ongoing habit of mine for all 50-something years I've been following Jesus Christ. And there is nothing more freeing than knowing that you're not carrying around shame and guilt. I remember that when, after that first year was over and I could check off that last box before I goofed up again and had to go back, it, it was like I'd gotten saved and born again. These people had forgiven me. I had made amends where I needed to make amends. And some of them were life-threatening for me. I could have been put in jail, and I had to go deal with it and just trust the Lord where I was gonna, whether I was going to get out of it or not. And I have found keeping those short accounts has absolutely simplified my life. So if I do find out there's something and I write something, now what do I do? First thing I do is I take immediate steps to ask God to forgive me, okay? Okay. And to receive his forgiveness, a la 1 John 1 9. He's gonna cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That even though I don't feel righteous, that Satan lion, I am, not because I am on my own, but because Jesus' work on the cross made me once and for all, forever acceptable, approved, and loved by God, never to lose it. Thank you, Jesus. Because if I could lose it, I'd have lost it a thousand times. But he comes back and he says, okay, you got this one for today, Lord. I got it today. I don't want to forget it again. And then ask God, Lord, I have a feeling that this is a habit, and I want it changed. And I've tried to change it, and it just doesn't work. So would you start changing my heart so that it doesn't happen as often? I suffer badly from hoof and mouth disease. It's a great disease to have when you're a preacher. I'm not cured, but I'm not where I was. That's the grace of God, not my self-discipline. That would The law kills in that sense, but Jesus gives me life. The third thing I would do is I would humble myself before a trusted friend by confiding in that friend about the struggle I might be having. Ever since I've been in this valley, I've had a handful of pastor friends that I meet with every week. We pray for the different churches. We pray for the different leadership in churches, primarily the leadership and the five of us that are there because we can share openly there and, and privately what we're wrestling with. We could share what our interpersonal you know, struggles were. Uh, and I won't... Anyway, th- we could share those things. And they would listen. They would give counsel. And they would pray. And I would know they would be praying because a couple weeks later, I'm in the car, my phone rings. One of them calls and says, Hey, I've been praying for you. I want to know how this situation is going. And that's where I come down to the fourth thing. Ask your trusted friend to pray for you and to check in with you often to show you how we're doing your struggle. Recently, I have had a fractured relationship that I was trying to do everything I could, according to Matthew 18, to make this thing right. And I was ready to go to this next step. And I was sharing with um, these four or five guys. I said, I... I'm not sure I should go to the second step, and I don't know if it's because I'm afraid to or if that other person just isn't in the right place to confront him. You know, there's sometimes that people are just not gonna be teachable, and you're not gonna be the one who's supposed to teach them right then and there. And so I spent some time praying with them. They gave me some more counsel to evaluate the situation, and I took my hands off fully realizing I want the best for this person but they have too much pressure going on in their life right now. It's why they did what they did for me to deal with it. And so I let it go. And as a result of doing that that's my life. Praising you Jesus. I'm excited. I'm available. I am ready with a good conscience to share my life with others. The failures the successes and where Jesus made it all possible. And that vulnerability, that being real is the very thing that is taking place in this church. Let's not kill it by allowing us as individuals to carry on guilty consciences. Pretty simple. Creative way to close this morning. Rather than me just pontificating with prayer, I'm going to invite all of us to just, you know, wherever you feel comfortable, close your eyes, bow your head, whatever. And um, I, I call them popcorn prayers. That if you have something you just want to praise the Lord for, just say, Lord, I want to praise you for this. If you have something you want to say, Lord, this was really helpful you know the issue I'm dealing with, and I'm thanking you that you brought it to mind this morning, and I promise to do it. Just whatever it is, I do not want you to throw yourself on the, on the cross in front of everybody here, okay? If you want to do that privately with someone else and have them hold you accountable, do it. But we are a family. Let's be real, and I'll just let it go for a few minutes with you guys Praying and then I'll close.